0: The Law School of America Unratified Amendments Collectively, members of the House and Senate typically propose around 150 amendments during each two-year term of Congress. Most however, never get out of the congressional committees in which they were proposed, and only a fraction of those that do receive enough support to win congressional approval to actually go through the constitutional ratification process. Six amendments approved by Congress and proposed to the states for consideration have not been ratified by the required number of states to become part of the constitution. Four of these are technically still pending, as Congress did not set a time limit for their ratification. The other two are no longer pending, as both had a time limit attached and in both cases the time period set for their ratification expired. Pending. The congressional apportionment amendment, proposed 1789, would, if ratified, Establish a formula for determining the appropriate size of the House of Representatives and the appropriate apportionment of representatives among the states following each constitutionally mandated decennial census. At the time it was sent to the states for ratification, an affirmative vote by 10 states would have made this amendment operational. In 1791 and 1792, when Vermont and Kentucky joined the Union, the number climbed to 12. Thus, The amendment remained one state shy of the number needed for it to become part of the Constitution. No additional states have ratified this amendment since. To become part of the Constitution today, ratification by an additional 27 would be required. The Apportionment Act of 1792 apportioned the House of Representatives at 33,000 persons per representative in consequence of the 1790 census. Reapportionment has since been effected by statute. The Titles of Nobility Amendment, proposed 1810, would, if ratified, strip United States citizenship from any citizen who accepted a title of nobility from a foreign country. When submitted to the states, ratification by 13 states was required for it to become part of the Constitution, 11 had done so by early 1812. However, with the addition of Louisiana into the Union that year, April 30, 1812, the ratification threshold rose to 14. Thus, when New Hampshire ratified it in December 1812, the amendment again came within two states of being ratified. No additional states have ratified this amendment since. To become part of the Constitution today, ratification by an additional 26 would be required. The Corwin Amendment, proposed 1861, would, if ratified, shield domestic institutions of the states, which in 1861 included slavery, from the constitutional amendment process and from abolition or interference by Congress. This proposal was one of several measures considered by Congress in an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to attract the seceding states back into the Union and to entice border slave states to stay. Five states ratified the amendment in the early 1860s, but none have since. To become part of the Constitution today, ratification by an additional 33 states would be required. The subject of this proposal was subsequently addressed by the 1865 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. The Child Labor Amendment, proposed 1924, would, if ratified, specifically authorize Congress to limit, regulate and prohibit labor of persons less than 18 years of age. The amendment was proposed in response to Supreme Court rulings in Hammer v. Dagenhart, 1918, and Bailey v. Drexel Furniture Company, 1922 that found federal laws regulating and taxing goods produced by employees under the ages of 14 and 16 unconstitutional. When submitted to the states, ratification by 36 states was required for it to become part of the Constitution, as there were 48 states. 28 had ratified the amendment by early 1937, but none have done so since. To become part of the Constitution today, ratification by an additional 10 would be required. A federal statute approved June 25, 1938 regulated the employment of those under 16 or 18 years of age in interstate commerce. The Supreme Court, by unanimous vote in United States v. Darby Lumber Company, 1941, found this law constitutional, effectively overturning Hammer v. Dagenhart. As a result of this development, the movement pushing for the amendment concluded. Law School of America. Status Contested The Equal Rights Amendment, proposed 1972, would have prohibited deprivation of equality of rights, discrimination, by the federal or state governments on account of sex. A seven-year ratification time limit was initially placed on the amendment, but as the deadline approached, Congress granted a three-year extension. 35 states ratified the proposed amendment prior to the original deadline, three short of the number required for it to be implemented, five of them later voted to rescind their ratification. No further states ratified the amendment within the extended deadline. In 2017, Nevada became the first state to ratify the ERA after the expiration of both deadlines, followed by Illinois in 2018, and Virginia in 2020, purportedly bringing the number of ratifications to 38. However, Experts and advocates have acknowledged legal uncertainty about the consequences of these ratifications, due to the expired deadlines in the five states' purported revocations. No longer pending. The District of Columbia Voting Rights Amendment, proposed 1978, would have granted the District of Columbia full representation in the United States Congress as if it were a state, repealed the 23rd Amendment, granted the District unconditional Electoral College voting rights and allowed its participation in the process by which the Constitution is amended. A seven-year ratification time limit was placed on the amendment. Sixteen states ratified the amendment, 22 short of the number required for it to be implemented, prior to the deadline, thus it failed to be adopted. Judicial Review The way the Constitution is understood is influenced by court decisions, especially those of the Supreme Court. These decisions are referred to as precedents. Judicial review is the power of the court to examine federal legislation, federal executive, and all state branches of government, to decide their constitutionality, and to strike them down if found unconstitutional. Judicial review includes the power of the court to explain the meaning of the Constitution as it applies to particular cases. Over the years, court decisions on issues ranging from governmental regulation of radio and television to the rights of the accused in criminal cases have changed the way many constitutional clauses are interpreted without amendment to the actual text of the Constitution. Legislation passed to implement the Constitution, or to adapt those implementations to changing conditions, broadens and, in subtle ways, changes the meanings given to the words of the Constitution. Up to a point, the rules and regulations of the many federal executive agencies have a similar effect. If an action of Congress or the agencies is challenged, however, it is the court system that ultimately decides whether these actions are permissible under the Constitution. The Supreme Court has indicated that once the Constitution has been extended to an area, by Congress or the courts, its coverage is irrevocable. To hold that the political branches may switch the Constitution on or off at will, would lead to a regime in which they, not this court, say what the law is. Scope and Theory Courts established by the Constitution can regulate government under the Constitution, the supreme law of the land. First, they have jurisdiction over actions by an officer of government and state law. Second, federal courts may rule on whether coordinate branches of national government conform to the Constitution. Until the 20th century, the Supreme Court of the United States may have been the only high tribunal in the world to use a court for constitutional interpretation of fundamental law, others generally depending on their national legislature. The basic theory of American judicial review is summarized by constitutional legal scholars and historians as follows The written Constitution is fundamental law. It can change only by an extraordinary legislative process of national proposal, then state ratification. The powers of all departments are limited to enumerated grants found in the Constitution. Courts are expected, a, to enforce provisions of the Constitution as the supreme law of the land, and, b, to refuse to enforce anything in conflict with it. In Convention. As to judicial review in the Congress, the first proposals by Madison, Va., and Wilson, Pa., called for a Supreme Court veto over national legislation. In this it resembled the system in New York, where the Constitution of 1777 called for a council of revision by the governor and justices of the state Supreme Court. The council would review and, in a way, veto any past legislation violating the spirit of the Constitution before it went into effect. The Nationalists' proposal at the convention was defeated three times and replaced by a presidential veto with congressional override. Judicial review relies on the jurisdictional authority in Article 3, and the Supremacy Clause. The justification for judicial review is to be explicitly found in the open ratifications held in the states and reported in their newspapers. John Marshall in Virginia James Wilson in Pennsylvania and Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut all argued for Supreme Court judicial review of acts of state legislature. In Federalist No. 78, Alexander Hamilton advocated the doctrine of the written document held as a superior enactment of the people. A limited constitution can be preserved in practice no other way than through courts which can declare void any legislation contrary to the constitution. The preservation of the people's authority over legislatures rests particularly with judges. The Supreme Court was initially made up of jurists who had been intimately connected with the framing of the Constitution and the establishment of its government as law. John Jay, New York, a co-author of the Federalist Papers, served as Chief Justice for the first six years. The second Chief Justice for a term of four years, was Oliver Ellsworth, Connecticut, a delegate in the Constitutional Convention, as was John Rutledge, South Carolina, Washington's recess appointment as Chief Justice who served in 1795. John Marshall, Virginia, the fourth Chief Justice, had served in the Virginia Ratification Convention in 1788. His service on the court would extend 34 years over some of the most important rulings to help establish the nation the Constitution had begun. In the first years of the Supreme Court, members of the Constitutional Convention who would serve included James Wilson, Pennsylvania, for ten years, John Blair, Jr., Virginia, for five, and John Rutledge, South Carolina, for one year as Justice then Chief Justice in 1795. Establishment When John Marshall followed Oliver Ellsworth as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1801, the federal judiciary had been established by the Judiciary Act, but there were few cases, and less prestige. The fate of judicial review was in the hands of the Supreme Court itself. Review of state legislation and appeals from state supreme courts was understood. But the court's life, jurisdiction over state legislation was limited. The Marshall Court's landmark *Baron v. Baltimore held that the Bill of Rights restricted only the federal government, and not the states. In the landmark Marbury v. Madison case, the Supreme Court asserted its authority of judicial review over acts of Congress. Its findings were that Marbury and the others had a right to their commissions as judges in the District of Columbia. Marshall, writing the opinion for the majority, announced his discovery of conflict between Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 and Article 3. In this case, both the Constitution and the statutory law applied to the particulars at the same time. The very essence of judicial duty according to Marshall was to determine which of the two conflicting rules should govern. The Constitution enumerates powers of the judiciary to extend to cases arising under the Constitution. Further, justices take a constitutional oath to uphold it as supreme law of the land. Therefore, since the United States government as created by the Constitution is a limited government the federal courts were required to choose the Constitution over congressional law if there were deemed to be a conflict. This argument has been ratified by time and by practice, the Supreme Court did not declare another act of Congress unconstitutional until the controversial Dred Scott decision in 1857, held after the voided Missouri Compromise statute had already been repealed. In the 80 years following the Civil War to World War II, the court voided congressional statutes in 77 cases, on average almost one a year. Something of a crisis arose when, in 1935 and 1936, the Supreme Court handed down 12 decisions voiding acts of Congress relating to the New Deal. President Franklin D. Roosevelt then responded with his abortive court packing plan. Other proposals have suggested a court supermajority to overturn congressional legislation or a constitutional amendment to require that the justices retire at a specified age by law. To date, the Supreme Court's power of judicial review has persisted. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash offer. all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash offer. The Law School of America Self-restraint The power of judicial review could not have been preserved long in a democracy unless it had been wielded with a reasonable measure of judicial restraint, and with some attention, as Mr. Dooley said, to the election returns. Indeed, The Supreme Court has developed a system of doctrine and practice that self limits its power of judicial review. The Court controls almost all of its business by choosing what cases to consider, writs of certiorari. In this way, it can avoid opinions on embarrassing or difficult cases. The Supreme Court limits itself by defining for itself what is a justiciable question. First, the Court is fairly consistent in refusing to make any advisory opinions in advance of actual cases. Second, Friendly suits between those of the same legal interest are not considered. Third, the court requires a personal interest, not one generally held, and a legally protected right must be immediately threatened by government action. Cases are not taken up if the litigant has no standing to sue. Simply having the money to sue and being injured by government action are not enough. These three procedural ways of dismissing cases have led critics to charge that the Supreme Court delays decisions by unduly insisting on technicalities in their standards of litigability. They say cases are left unconsidered which are in the public interest, with genuine controversy, and resulting from good faith action. The Supreme Court is not only a court of law but a court of justice. Separation of Powers The Supreme Court balances several pressures to maintain its roles in national government. It seeks to be a co-equal branch of government, but its decrees must be enforceable. The court seeks to minimize situations where it asserts itself superior to either the president or Congress, but federal officers must be held accountable. The Supreme Court assumes power to declare acts of Congress as unconstitutional but itself limits its passing on constitutional questions. But the court's guidance on basic problems of life and governance in a democracy is most effective when American political life reinforces its rulings. Justice Brandeis summarized four general guidelines that the Supreme Court uses to avoid constitutional decisions relating to Congress, the court will not anticipate a question of constitutional law nor decide open questions unless a case decision requires it. If it does, a rule of constitutional law is formulated only as the precise facts in the case require. The court will choose statutes or general law for the basis of its decision if it can without constitutional grounds. If it does, the court will choose the constitutional construction of an act of Congress, even if its constitutionality is seriously in doubt. Likewise, with the executive department, Edwin Corwin observed that the court does sometimes rebuff presidential pretensions, but it more often tries to rationalize them. Against Congress, an act is merely disallowed. In the executive case, exercising judicial review produces some change in the external world beyond the ordinary judicial sphere. The political question doctrine especially applies to questions which present a difficult enforcement issue. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes addressed the court's limitation when political process allowed future policy change, but a judicial ruling would attribute finality. Political questions lack satisfactory criteria for a judicial determination. John Marshall recognized that the president holds important political powers which as executive privilege allows great discretion. This doctrine was applied in court rulings on President Grant's duty to enforce the law during Reconstruction. It extends to the sphere of foreign affairs. Justice Robert Jackson explained, foreign affairs are inherently political, wholly confided by our Constitution to the political departments of the government, not subject to judicial intrusion or inquiry. Critics of the court object in two principal ways to self-restraint and judicial review, deferring as it does as a matter of doctrine to acts of Congress and presidential actions. Its inaction is said to allow a flood of legislative appropriations which permanently create an imbalance between the states and federal government. Supreme Court deference to Congress and the executive compromises American protection of civil rights, political minority groups and aliens. Further information, separation of powers under the United States Constitution. Subsequent Ports Supreme Courts under the leadership of subsequent chief justices have also used judicial review to interpret the Constitution among individuals, states and federal branches. Notable contributions were made by the Chase Court, the Taft Court, the Warren Court, and the Rehnquist Court. Salmon P. Chase was a Lincoln appointee, serving as chief justice from 1864 to 1873. His career encompassed service as a U.S. Senator and Governor of Ohio. He coined the slogan, Free soil, free labor, free men. One of Lincoln's team of rivals, he was appointed Secretary of Treasury during the Civil War, issuing greenbacks. To appease Radical Republicans, Lincoln appointed him to replace Chief Justice Roger B. Tawney of Dred Scott case fame. In one of his first official acts, Chase admitted John Rock, the first African American to practice before the Supreme Court. The Chase Court is famous for Texas v. White, which asserted a permanent union of indestructible states. VZ Bank v. Fenno upheld the Civil War tax on state banknotes. Hepburn v. Griswold found parts of the legal tender acts unconstitutional, though it was reversed under a late Supreme Court majority. William Howard Taft was a Harding appointment to Chief Justice from 1921 to 1930. A progressive Republican from Ohio, he was a one-term president. As Chief Justice, he advocated the Judiciary Act of 1925 that brought the federal district courts under the administrative jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Taft successfully sought the expansion of court jurisdiction over non states such as the District of Columbia and territories of Alaska and Hawaii. In 1925, the Taft Court issued a ruling overturning a Marshall Court ruling on the Bill of Rights. In Gidlow v. New York, the Court established the doctrine of incorporation which applied the Bill of Rights to the states. Important cases included the Board of Trade of City of Chicago v. Olson that upheld congressional regulation of commerce. Olmstead v. United States allowed exclusion of evidence obtained without a warrant based on application of the 14th Amendment proscription against unreasonable searches. Wisconsin v. Illinois ruled the equitable power of the United States can impose positive action on a state to prevent its inaction from damaging another state. Earl Warren was an Eisenhower nominee. Chief Justice from 1953 to 1969. Warren's Republican career in the law reached from County Prosecutor, California State Attorney General, and three consecutive terms as Governor. His programs stressed progressive efficiency, expanding state education, reintegrating returning veterans, infrastructure and highway construction. In 1954, The Warren Court overturned a landmark Fuller Court ruling on the 14th Amendment interpreting racial segregation as permissible in government and commerce providing separate but equal services. Warren built the Coalition of Justices after 1962 that developed the idea of natural rights as guaranteed in the Constitution. Brown v. Board of Education banned segregation in public schools. Baker v. Carr and Reynolds v. Sims established court ordered one man one vote. Bill of Rights amendments were incorporated into the states. Due process was expanded in Gideon v. Wainwright and Miranda v. Arizona. First Amendment rights were addressed in Griswold v. Connecticut concerning privacy, and Engel v. Vitale relative to free speech. William Rehnquist was a Reagan appointment to Chief Justice, serving from 1986 to 2005. While he would concur with overthrowing a state Supreme Court's decision, as in Bush v. Gore, he built a coalition of justices after 1994 that developed the idea of federalism as provided for in the Tenth Amendment. In the hands of the Supreme Court, the Constitution and its amendments were to restrain Congress, as in City of Bernie v. Flores. Nevertheless, the Rehnquist Court was noted in the contemporary culture wars for overturning state laws relating to privacy prohibiting late-term abortions in Stenberg v. Carhartt, prohibiting sodomy in Lawrence v. Texas or ruling so as to protect free speech in Texas v. Johnson or affirmative action in Grutter v. Bollinger. Civic Religion There is a viewpoint that some Americans have come to see the documents of the Constitution, along with the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, as being a cornerstone of a type of civil religion. This is suggested by the prominent display of the Constitution, along with the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, in massive, bronze-framed, bulletproof, Moisture controlled glass containers vacuum sealed in a rotunda by day and in multi ton bomb proof vaults by night at the National Archives building. The idea of displaying the documents struck one academic critic looking from the point of view of the 1776 or 1789 America as idolatrous, and also curiously at odds with the values of the Revolution. By 1816, Jefferson wrote that some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched but he saw imperfections and imagined that there could potentially be others, believing as he did that institutions must advance also. Some commentators depict the multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian United States as held together by a political orthodoxy, in contrast with a nation-state of people having more natural ties. Worldwide Influence The United States Constitution has been a notable model for governance around the world. Its international influence is found in similarities of phrasing and borrowed passages in other constitutions, as well as in the principles of the rule of law, separation of powers and recognition of individual rights. The American experience of fundamental law with amendments and judicial review has motivated constitutionalists at times when they were considering the possibilities for their nation's future. It informed Abraham Lincoln during the American Civil War his contemporary and ally Benito Juarez of Mexico, and the second generation of 19th-century constitutional nationalists, José Rizal of the Philippines and Sun Yat-sen of China. Since the latter half of the 20th century, the influence of the United States Constitution may be waning as other countries have revised their constitutions with new influences. Criticisms The United States Constitution has faced various criticisms since its inception in 1787. The Constitution did not originally define who was eligible to vote, allowing each state to determine who was eligible. In the early history of the U.S., most states allowed only white male adult property owners to vote. Until the Reconstruction Amendments were adopted between 1865 and 1870, the five years immediately following the Civil War, the Constitution did not abolish slavery, nor give citizenship and voting rights to former slaves. These amendments did not include a specific prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sex. It took another amendment, the 19th, ratified in 1920, for the Constitution to prohibit any United States citizen from being denied the right to vote on the basis of sex. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution. Share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast.